it was of interest to me as I heard the announcement of um, which particular movies did well during the long Thanksgiving holiday. There was three um, sort of blockbusters, blockbusters that were there. One was a new James Bond thriller. Um, had gotten good reviews as thrillers go. Then there was uh, a movie depicting Lincoln, President Abraham Lincoln, and his struggles in trying to free the slaves before and during the Civil War that was going on. Interesting movie. The third was a romantic movie involving vampires. <laughs> vampires. That's right, I said vampires. And you'll never guess which movie took in the most money on the long Thanksgiving weekend. The vampire movie. Lord have mercy on our souls. It just kind of shows where many of our young people in the direction they're going nowadays, doesn't it? Vampires. In the book of Romans, the book of Romans splits into two sections, basically. Chapters 1 through 11 are the Gospels. He presents the full picture of the Gospel. Beginning in chapter 12, he makes application to what he has written in the previous 11 chapters. Really basic um, outline of the book. And he begins chapter 12 almost at the beginning, and, he's, and these are the words he says, and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The reason he writes that is there is a tendency as believers for us to be overwhelmed by the things of the world and to begin to conform our lives to what the pagans and the unbelievers around us do that. He, he begins right at the first step as he begins his exposition on applying the gospel to our lives, that we've got to be careful not to conform our, our lives to the pattern that we find in our unbelieving friends and relatives that surround us. Now, the reason I bring this up is because the book of Amos, during the time of Amos, and we'll talk about that in a minute, the believers of that day, God's people, the Jewish people, had begun to allow the pagan nations surrounding them to influence them in what they were doing. And Amos speaks to that through his book. Nine chapters. We don't know a lot about Amos. Now it says in verse 1 that he wrote these things two years before the earthquake. Secular history tells, tells us that the earthquake took place around 760, 762. That's from secular history. So Amos was alive in the 8th century B.C., around 760-something, approximately 40-plus years before the northern kingdom was invaded by Assyria. And he was called to preach the word to the northern kingdom, the ten northern tribes in Israel. We know a little bit about him. Uh, he wasn't a prophet nor a son of a prophet, according to chapter 7, Verse 14, it says, I am not a prophet nor a son of a prophet, meaning that he wasn't trained professionally. He didn't go to the prophet's school, nor was his daddy or his, or 
his relatives involved in a ministry, but rather he was a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. He was a farmer. But nevertheless, the Lord called him to go to the northern tribes and to preach this message. Okay, that's our background. That's all we know about Amos. Not too much more. Now, here's the question that we're going to deal with this morning. What happens when God's people begin to allow the world to influence how they live? What what happens? Well, um, there's some realities that we see in the nine chapters before us. But they're not just limited to Amos' time because uh, there's some eternal principles (laughs) that apply also whatever century we find ourselves in. So let's take a look. Five realities. Perhaps there's more, but I've picked out five. The first is found in chapters 1 through 2. The people will be punished right along with the unbelievers. The people will... What happens? The people, God's people, will be punished right along with the unbelievers. Notice he begins in verse 3 of chapter 1. He says... Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke its punishment. Now he begins to go review the countries surrounding north, east, south, and west, the countries surrounding Israel, and they're either countries or city-states, Damascus being the city-state. And then he, in the following verses, he tells why that particular city-state, Damascus, will be punished. Okay? Then in verse 6, he goes on, repeats the same words except for Gaza. Verse 9, repeats the same words except for the city-state of Tyre. Verse 11, same words for the city-state of Edom. Verse 13, same words for the country of Ammon. Chapter 2, verse 1, once again, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four I will not revoke its punishment. God is proclaiming his punishment on the surrounding pagan nations for the kind of lives they're living. Not a big revelation there. We would expect that. Amen? However, notice he continues. Verse 4 of chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, the southern two tribes, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. And he talks a little bit about there, then picks the theme up again in verse 6 of chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, the ten northern tribes. Hmm. So, As God is pronouncing his judgment, his punishment on that whole Palestine area, if I can use that word, the whole area around Israel and the nations included, he includes the ten northern tribes and two southern tribes, the two kingdoms that existed then. And the reason he includes them is because (laughs) they're not acting too much different than the rest of the pagans around them. That's his point. You see, the Jewish people were to be a separate and distinct people of God in the way they dressed, in the way they ate, 
in how they worshiped God and what God they worshiped, uh, how they treated their wives, how they treated each other in business and socially. In every way, they were to be separate and distinct from the pagan countries around them. However, this was beginning to break down. And they were beginning to act more and more and look more and more like their pagan neighbors. We see the same thing in our day-to-day, don't we? Divorce is about the same in the church and outside the church. Uh, The horror of abortion, a little less in the church, but not much, guys. My Newsweek magazine that I get every week is called The Week. It's an interesting magazine. I'm not promoting it, nor am I selling subscriptions to it. Um, The title of this week's cover article was Where Are All the Babies? Uh, The Plummeting U.S. Birth Rate. Now, this article goes on to point out that because of the taxes and the working women, that women are working now and they they don't have as many babies. Also, the fact that many people are more interested in the economic prosperity, so they only have one or two kids, as opposed to what was common back when uh, I was born, four to five, six kids. They never mention, never, never mention, the 55 million American children that have been killed since 1973. And the babies that would have been born by them who had they not been killed. Where are all the babies? (laughs) We killed them. That's where all the babies are. We have this whole issue of homosexuality now invading the church. We have denominations that not only recognize that it's okay lifestyle, but they ordain their pastors. We have this whole thing of homosexual marriage now being forced on us. We have pornography, rampant both in the church and outside the church. We have organizations, missions organizations that no longer evangelize the people they've been sent to in foreign countries, but they just provide relief. And the reason they don't evangelize them, because, well, all paths lead to God, and why disrupt their cultural habits? If they're sincere, we'll all get to heaven. We have denominations that no longer believe in the inspiration or the errancy of scripture. Oh, the Bible is filled with errors. We have people who use the media and whatever that means no different from uh, their pagan neighbors, their unbelieving neighbors. And so the first thing that we see uh, here in Amos and the thing that we see in our country that people will be punished right along with their unbelieving neighbors because there's no difference. The second reality, see, now, when I began this series on the Minor Prophets, I told you this was not going to be a bunch of happy, clappy sermons. I I warned you, so don't yell at me. I'm just the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. Let the, the message speak to your heart. Okay. Second reality that we see is the people will become morally corrupt in every way. Now, scattered throughout these chapters in verses chapters 2 through 8, 
We have a whole litany of evidence that shows that things were not going good morally for those people. And we'll just look at a few. I won't look at them all, but look at chapter 2, verse 4. It says in the latter half of that verse, because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. They paid no attention to the teaching of the Bible. Verse 6, latter half of that verse, because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Verse 7, latter half of that, and a man and his father resort to the same girl, having sexual relationships with the same person, in order to profane my holy name. Verse 12, we're skipping over some, but look at verse, uh, verse 12. But you made the Nazarites to drink wine. That was exactly what they were supposed to not to do. And you command the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. Telling a preacher to be quiet is, <laughs> wow, that's an impossible task, but that's what they were trying to do. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1, you oppress the poor and you crush the needy. Chapter 5, verse 7. We're just moving right through them. You turn justice into wormwood and you cast righteousness down to the earth. Verse 11 of chapter 5. Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them. Verse 12 of chapter 5. For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor at the gate. Meaning that was where the the trials were held. So the poor don't even get a, a proper reading. Fair justice. That's what he's talking about. Verse 8 of chapter 6. I loathe the arrogance of Jacob, my people. It's a lack of humility. They were arrogant, proud. Verse 12 of chapter 6. You have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Look at chapter 8, verse 5. You say, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and to cheat with dishonest scales? They couldn't wait for the Sabbath and the holy days to go over so they could go back to business. And the reason they were doing that is because they were cheating people and making money. So we can see... Corruption had taken over every aspect of their lives, socially, morally, business-wise, in their marriages, and all that they were doing. The people had become morally corrupt. Okay. Third reality. The people will be warned by signs. Now, as we saw last week, oftentimes God will try to get our attention. And how he gets our attention is by causing things to happen that kind of, oh, why is this happening? 
Notice in chapter 4. He gives them some signs. The reason God does this is because he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Uh, The Lord doesn't relish... He's not looking forward to punishing us. (laughs) That's not where his heart is at at all. He takes no pleasure in punishing us. I don't know about you. Now, there have been times where I've had to, when my children were younger, I had to punish them. Amen? Did you look forward to that time when you had to take Junior down the long hall, down to the bedroom? Oh, no, Daddy, no. (laughs) We don't look forward to those times, do we? Well, that's the heart of God, and, and we're sinners. Just imagine how God feels towards his people, his children. He's not interested in that. So he gives them signs. Look at the signs. Chapter 4, verse 6. But I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your city. He's not talking about flossing and brushing. What he's talking about is famine. He sent a famine, a lack of bread in all your places. Look at, yet you have not returned to me. He gave him a sign. He gave him famine. They didn't pay attention. Verses 7 and 8, he talks about, I've sent a lack of rain. I've withheld rain. Some cities got rain. Other cities didn't. Yet you have not returned to me. Going on, verse 9, like we saw last week. I smote you with scorching wind and mildew and the caterpillar devouring your gardens, your vines, your olive trees. Yet you have not returned to me. I sent a plague, verse 10, in the manner of Egypt. In other words, diseases upon you. You haven't returned to me. Verse 11, I overthrew you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And what what many people are saying is some of their cities had already been sacked and burned. Yet you have not returned to me. And then he's kind of building on a crescendo there, okay? And then in verse 12, he says... (laughs) Therefore, uh, thus I will do to you, O Israel, prepare to meet your God. Okay, that's building on a crescendo. And what he's talking about, he's not talking about a time of warm fellowship and encouragement when he says prepare to meet your God. What he's talking about is what happened 40 years later when the Assyrians came down and burned all their cities and took everybody away captive. That's what he's talking about. Hmm. Now, these things are not new. It's not new. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29, that's the blessing and cursing chapters. Blessing if you do this. (laughs) Curses if you do that. Blessing if you walk with me. Curses if you forget me and deny me. They were told that in the law. So this is not something new. Now, I was looking through, cross-referencing some passages, and listen to the prayer of King Solomon. You remember when King Solomon was dedicating the the temple? He made this long prayer, and he would say, listen, if your your people do this and do this, and they they turn to you and repent, hear their prayer. Let let me read what King Solomon, this is uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 37. Uh, You want to write that down. If there is famine in the land, oh. If there's pestilence, wow. If there's blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if there are any besieges them in the land of their cities, 
whatever plague there is, whatever sickness there is. And then he goes on, and if your, my, your people turn and pray, uh, hear their prayer. It was almost like God gave him those words because that's exactly what was happening to them. However, verse 4, chapter 4 tells us, I brought all those things, yet you did not return to me. Now, when we were talking about this last week, several other people came up afterwards and said, well, Pastor Neil, does every time something bad happened, I mean, is, is God somehow involved in that? Well, you have to kind of understand. We're living in a fallen world with six billion plus sinners. Now, you get that many sinners on one little planet, and guess what happens? A lot of bad things. Kind of like what happened this past week. Now, is everything caused by God? Well, certainly what happened Friday wasn't caused by God. All those little precious little children killed. But God can use events like that to speak to us. Amen? (laughs) To get our attention like we spoke about last week. To kind of wake us up hopefully causing us to repent. Now, I've learned over the years not to take too casually when bad things start to happen in my life. You know why? It's almost like I've learned, okay, it could be just I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, okay? But most of the time, what I do is say, is that you, Lord? (laughs) Is that you, Lord? Are you speaking to me, Lord? Is this a sign for me, Lord? I find that's a lot better approach than just, well, I just happened to be in the wrong place in the wrong time. Because God, who loves his people, will oftentimes say to them, you're going the wrong way. Stop. And how he does that is by sending things that kind of shake our tree, like we spoke about last week that shake our tree, to get our attention. That's exactly what he says in chapter 4. However, they didn't listen. And what is spoken of in verse 12 turned out to be a very unpleasant time. People will often be warned by signs. I don't know about you, but all Friday morning when I I just was just at the point of tears, just the whole good part of the day. You know what? And then we went home and watched the news and we we saw some of those people. And I thought, boy, what's happening to our country? What is happening to our country? What's going on? Does does this say something about the the fallenness, the, the direction that we're heading? It seems like these things are going more and more. It's like, what's happening? How could this terrible thing happen? What does it say about our country? What does it say about our morality? What does it say about where the people are at? Terrible event. But God oftentimes 
We use these terrible events to try to get our attention. Fourth reality. In chapters 2 through 5. The people of God have the word of God. Now, that's different from the pagans. They, many times they don't pay any attention. They don't go to church. They don't read the Bible. They don't listen to Christian radios, stations. They don't have any of that. But the people of God have the word of God. Now, they had the first five books of the law. Maybe even some of the historical books have been written by now. But they also had Amos. And Amos was doing what? He was preaching the word of God. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. So they had the word of God. Now, we have the word of God. We have it in multiple sources. You have it in your lap this morning. You have the word of God. You also have pulpit ministries throughout this country that are where they accurately teach the word of God. We have good radio stations, K-Wave and many others. We have some good television stations, some, but there are a few there. We have the internet programs, um, multiple sources where we have the Word of God. However, it's not enough just to have the Word of God. Not enough just to have it. You've got to give heed to it. Now, look with me at just a couple of places. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. He reminds them. He just teaches them. He says, listen, guys, I was the one who brought you up from Egypt. Don't you remember? So he reminds them of what he's done in the past. Look at verse 10. It was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt. I led you into the wilderness for 40 years that you might take possession of the land from the Amorite. That's what I've done in the past. We looked at chapter 4, and he told them over and over again. And he says, but you've not returned to me. He reminded them, I've done this and this and this, but you still haven't returned to me. Chapter 4, uh, excuse me, chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 4. He says to them, thus says the Lord of God, house of Israel. Seek me that you may live. So the word of the Lord is saying, seek me that you may live. Verse 6, seek the Lord that you may live. Verse 14 of the same chapter, seek good and not evil that you may live. And thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you. Just as I said, verse 15, Hate evil, love good, establish justice at the gate. Verse 24 of the same chapter, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So throughout these chapters, over and over again, Amos says, thus says the Lord, and he gives them some specific directions of things that they should do and things that they should stop doing. But as I said, they have God's word, but it's not enough to have, just to have it. In Matthew chapter 7, 
verses 24 through 25, Jesus tells a story, a parable. Matthew chapter 7 is the close of the Sermon on the Mount. So he's preached this powerful sermon, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And he closes with a story of two men. One man built a house on the rock. Another man built a house on the sand. And when the storms of life came, the man's house who, on, who was built on the sand was washed away and destroyed, representing his life. The man whose house was built, whose life was built on the rock, was able to withstand the storm of life, the floods. And then he makes the application. The man who built his house on the sand is like someone who has the word of God, but what? Pays no attention to it. The man whoever, who has his house built on the rock, who was able to withstand the storms of life, is a man who had the word of God and applied it. Now, perhaps one of the scariest scriptures in all the New Testament is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Go home and read it when you... Scare the bejeebers out of you. (laughs) It says, Paul writes this, he says, in the end times, we'll come to a place where because the people have rejected the love of the truth, that God will, it says, and God will send a strong delusion. Did you hear that? God will send people a strong delusion that they will believe a lie. That's a... (laughs) I don't think we're there yet. But he says, there's coming a time when I will send the people who have rejected the love of the truth a strong delusion so they won't be able to believe the truth. They'll believe a lie. Wow. Now, in our book, chapter 8, look with me, verse 11. Very parallel. Look what he says. Because they had the word of God, but they didn't apply it. Listen to what he says. Behold, the days are coming when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or thirst for water, but rather for the hearing of the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea, from north even to east. They will go to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Oh. What that tells us of the seriousness, the seriousness of having God's word when we combine it to 2 Thessalonians and what Jesus said, combine those three scriptures together, it shows us the seriousness of having the word of God but paying no attention to it. People have the word of God. Now this year, Nancy and I gave ourselves an early Christmas present. We took our 200-pound TV, which was this thick, this thick, 200 pounds, and we turned it in for a flat-screen TV that's this thick. Unbelievable technology. And for me, the assignment was I was going to hang that thing on the wall. Oh, thank you very much for that. So I took the instructions and all the hardware and I laid them out on the kitchen table. Okay. And I read the instructions really carefully. 
Then I read them again. Then I got the hardware out and I checked the bolts, where they go in the back of the TV and, and how it all hung. And then I took all the hardware over to the place we we're going to hang it on the wall and I went over the instructions again <laughs> and paid careful attention. You know why? Because in the middle of the night, I did not want to hear a loud crash and have our brand new TV on the floor in many pieces. I paid attention to the instructions. And only, I'm only talking about a stupid TV. Not about my life. Not about my life. Jesus says in the gospel, your life is like a man who builds his house on the sand. If you have the word of God, and you pay no attention to it, because the, it's not if the storms of life, is when they come, and they are coming. The storms of life are coming. If they haven't already come, they will come. And the only way you'll stand is if you have the word of God, and you apply it to your life. Okay. The last reality that we see in this book is the people can be assured of two things. They can be assured of two things. Now, this is the Word of God, so it, it kind of is attached to the previous, chap- previous point, but I wanted to extract it because it kind of, he sums up and he kind of ties it all together with these two thoughts. First thought And these things will happen no matter what. The first thing, verses 9, chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, is that God's judgment is unavoidable. (laughs) It's coming. It is coming. And he kind of makes this kind of parallel statements. He says, even if you're in heaven (laughs) or you're in hell, you're not going to escape. Okay. Then he says, even if you're on the mountain, Carmel, or you're in the depths of the sea, you're not going to escape. The judgment of God is coming. Now, we cannot stop it. It's coming. The question is whether we will experience it. Now, you remember the story of Noah. The judgment of God was coming, was it not? It is coming in a flood. And Noah did what with God's word? He believed God's word and he built that boat. And because his family and some of the animals, air-breathing animals, he put in that boat, they were saved from the destruction that came upon the world that day. Isn't that true? Now, Jesus, in New Testament times, he, the judgment of God, we can escape it because he took it upon himself. That's what the Christian message is. I mean, it, it came, but it, came, it, it fell upon him. He took upon it. And if we're in Christ, we'll, uh, even as Paul says, when the tribulation comes, we'll be delivered from the wrath that is coming because we're in Christ. Now, as I studied this passage, I thought, yeah, okay, yeah, he's talking about that, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, Neil. 
In 722 BC, when the Assyrians invaded northern Israel, the 10 northern tribes, were there any believers that were living in Samaria? Any? Well, probably some, right? What do you think? There were some people who were godly. How about uh, when Babylon invaded the southern kingdom and burned Jerusalem, took everybody captive? Were there believers in living in Jerusalem at that time? Yeah, there were. <laughs> uh, Jeremiah, at least Jeremiah, you know, we just finished that a few months ago. But yet, what happened to both of those groups? What happened? They got carried away with the rest of the unbelievers, didn't they? Now, they, didn't, they don't suffer eternal punishment. But here's, here's, here's a thought that you might want to think about. They suffered as much as their unbelieving friends and relatives, didn't they not? That's a scary thought when we apply it to our country, is it not? That's why we need to pray. Here's a very selfish motivation <laughs> to pray for our country. I, I, just, I, I wanted to really end in a happy note, so I gave you that. No, the happy note is the second thing. Let's close with this. The second thing is God's plan for his people will be accomplished. Look what it says here. Verse 11. In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David. Wow. The wall and its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. He's going to reestablish the Davidic kingdom. Look with me in verses 14. And 15, the last two verses in the chapter. I will also restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. I will also plant vineyards and drink wine and, and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant on them their land. They will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. They were taken out in seven, in the eighth century, in the sixth century. They were taken out again in the first century A.D. And they're coming back and God's promise is what? They will not again be rooted out. Aha, that's a promise. And that promise has to do with when Jesus came back and he established the millennium. Amen? Now, as I look around this place, I don't have a lot of confidence. Do you? In the financial markets? No. How about the political realm? No. Not just our country, but a lot of countries are just got a lot of screwy leaders, a lot of wackos. <laughs> I don't have a lot of confidence in what's going on around here. As a matter of fact, the only, sometimes the only confidence I have is uh, this book here and the words that are written in this book. Amen? But you know what? These verses, in, especially verses 14 and 15, I'm planning on being there. When these verses take place, I'm planning on being there. Maybe have a little plot of land. Maybe enough for the little garden. Maybe just over by Caesarea, overlooking the Mediterranean. I'm planning on being there. Maybe a little gazebo outside. <laughs> 
sitting with my extended family. We'll have a big pasta dinner with, with a fresh garden salad and a little Chianti, uh, according to this, for the stomach steak, as the Bible says. <laughs> and after giving blessing from the food, I'll look up over the family and everything that God has done, and I'll say, look at what God has done. I'm planning to be there. How about you? Father, what a hard book. What a difficult book. But there's a promise for the people of God. Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation, and perhaps tribulation troubles are coming upon our country. And perhaps even we who still love you will be caught up in much of the difficulties that are coming. That's a very good possibility. But yet we know there's a country and there's a city whose builder and foundation is God, and we're looking for that kingdom, looking for that Jesus. We'll see him, we'll be like him. So help us more and more not be conformed to this world, but be transformed in our minds by the word of God we might know the perfect and good and great work of God. In Jesus' name.